Telecast. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby and welcome to another Telecast. My guest this week is one of the content industry's most experienced and successful factual executives, Jane Root from Newtopia. Hi, Jane. How are you? Hi there. Great to see you again. Last time when I saw you was Edinburgh TV Festival, I think, where we had a a quick chat on the show, which was great, but delighted that you're direct from Washington and uh, you you can uh, spend a few minutes of your time having a chat. So thank you for that. How's life in Washington? At the moment, it's very snowy. (laughs) So it's great to be here. Great to be here. We talked about a number of different things in Edinburgh. And this all already seems an awfully long time ago. And there's lots of change, lots of disruption happening in the content industry. We're going to um, cover that off a little bit later in the show. But first of all, it'd be a really good idea, I think, if we can talk about your career background and get an idea of how you initially got into the TV industry, what your first roles were, and talk us through how you got to being the CEO of Utopia, because I know you've held lots of really influential positions at channels as well as other production companies. So talk us through your career journey today. Well, if you want to start at the beginning, when I was 17, I did a journalism course. Uh, I decided not to go to university straight away. And I did a one-year journalism course at what was then the London College of Printing. And that was the best decision I ever made. And I then went to college. But after that, I worked as a freelance journalist, and including doing some stuff at the British Film Institute. And that led to working on an independent production with Michael Jackson, who went on to run Channel 4, amongst other things. And we set up a little company. I worked for him as a researcher. And then we set up a company together and that we did a, a show called, the, which became the media show. And we did that for a few years. And that kind of became wall to wall TV. And then I got to a point in my career where I kind of got really frustrated by the fact I didn't know what broadcasters, how they really worked. You know, I know I remember making a list of all the things I didn't understand. I didn't understand about research or about scheduling, which was still very important then or about budgets for big things. And Michael, the same Michael, had been pestering me to go to work with him at the BBC. And I'd always resisted, but it got to a point where I thought, I'm going to do it. So I left wall to wall and went to the BBC. And what was the main change being on the other side of the fence, if you like, um, after wall to wall when you were at the BBC? Because obviously, the, the, was that initially to be BBC Two controller? Or? No, I did an intermediary job, which was called the, the ICG, the Independent Commissioning Group, whose job was to buy things from independents. And at that point in time, the BBC were really making a mess of working with independents. By law, they were supposed to get 25% of their shows from independents, and every year they failed to do it. And so, because I'd worked on that side, my job was to find... uh, Find the good ones. Find the good ones. And also, and we had this amazing team. Kevin Ligo was in charge of entertainment. Um, Tessa Ross was in charge of drama. And so really brilliant people. Nicola Moody, who I still work with, was in charge of factual. And we were like, we used to say to the channel controllers, kind of like anything they wanted, we could find someone who could give it to them. And it was like a different attitude in the BBC, that we were we were able to get them what they wanted. And independents were more than happy to work with us. 
And did, did it feel a little bit in those days a little bit uh, us and them? If oh you God, like? completely. We were like we were absolutely like not loved by BBC and house people. We were definitely we were the bad kids who we were seen as wrecking the BBC because we were bringing on all these outside companies. And we were we were not popular. And then you moved on to become controller of BBC Two. Um, what was that? experience like how long were you there as controller five years i uh i could it was wonderful it was kind of it's like one of the best jobs in the world i was also working for greg dyke most of the time which was amazing and although we never felt it at the time with hindsight we had lots of money and incredible freedom we just did things you know Uh, the weird thing about the bbc then was that it you had to be really radical to do new things and get rid of things that people really hated you for, which was sad. But we managed to do just really great, fun things. You know, the office in comedy, we did Coast, we did Who Do You Think You Are and The Apprentice, and we just had fun. We had a really great team. We had fun. Yeah, well, there's a huge number of hits that you've just mentioned there. What was what was the show that you were most proud of, do you think, uh, when, that you commissioned at BBC Two? I don't even know if anyone will remember it, but I, I, we did a thing called Greatest Britain, which was about a, a kind of interactive search to find the greatest Britain of all time, which kind of people got really obsessed by for one summer. And that felt like really like connecting the whole country together. And that was exciting. And The Office, I think, is the one that's kind of people remember. Although that was a little teeny show. It wasn't people say, oh, it was, must have been such a huge thing to commission. It was really cheap. It was like, you know, we had all these big stars like Steve Coogan and people and Victoria Wood and, you know, and Ricky and Steve weren't, were cheap. <laughs> and and uh, did they come to pitch directly to you? Tell, tell me about the, the time when that, that pitch process right. for the it office. Was a really, it was a really good, I remember it very clearly. Uh, it was at the end of an entertainment uh, session with the team and John Plowman and his amazing team. And they said, Oh, we've just got something to show you at the end. And it was this little tape that Stephen Merchant had made on a trainee assistant producers scheme. And it had Ricky standing next to the photocopier being the David Brent character and the two of them just like talking to each other. And it was really funny. And we were all kind of just like, Oh God, we've got to do a pilot. And. It all sort of started from there. And that was based just based on their chemistry, essentially. and and It was based on the fact of this thing about like really taking the piss out of kind of management speak, which kind of we, we all lived in the middle of that, working at John Burt's BBC, you know, and we all knew exactly what he was, you know, performance targets and kind of all of those things and the kind of, making fun of the dullness of office life, you know, the photocopier never working and all those things. It was just inherently brilliant. And yeah. And so when you moved on from the BBC, that was to Discovery, yeah. is that right? I moved to America for Discovery. And tell us about your role at Discovery, because you were president, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, I was running the Discovery Channel and I was just running a few other smaller channels, but it was completely different. It was like real amazing culture shock going from the BBC where kind of anything you do at the BBC that you're proud of as a channel controller, people know about, people see. You know, you've got BBC still got amazing reach of people on every, 
you go to Discovery Channel and you can make amazing shows and zero people can watch. You're also dealing with advertisers and affiliates. It's like a whole different world. And a very narrow group of people for whom Discovery Channel was their home. Very different from the BBC where you're big, broad church of you know, almost everybody. Must have been a bit of culture shock there, was there not? Oh, yeah. It was like, it, it was also helped by the fact the day that I went to get my visa to move to America, I discovered I was pregnant. And I, I didn't tell anyone at Discovery for nearly six months. They just, they didn't know what I looked like. <laughs> and I wore these voluminous clothes and didn't drink. And yeah. And so I kind of, that was an additional bit of culture shock that went on. Yeah. And um, how long were you there then at Discovery? Four years. Right. Okay. Um, David Zaslav became uh, the CEO halfway through that. And I stayed on for him for a couple of years. And what was, what were the, were the key points in your time there, do you think? Now you look back at your time at, uh, at Discovery, because obviously it must have informed much of what you were doing at, at Newtopia when you moved on to, to, to launch Newtopia. But what were the key takeaways that you took from working at Discovery? Well, the best show we ever did at Discovery is still on, which is Deadliest Catch, which was about, you know, fishermen in near the Arctic Circle catching crabs. And it was kind of when you did a show like that, that people really, really cared about that it, it actually, and you could do it loads and loads and loads of them. And that thing of adrenaline plus knowledge, that was our kind of keywords, adrenalized information. And we managed to kind of, not in everything, but in a few things, we managed to hit that on the head and kind of deliver on that, on that, on that beat, really. I think I, with hindsight, I should have done it a lot more, but we did it for a range of our shows. But it was, yeah, we, we got to places in, which would now be called red states or Trump supporting states, um, which people in TV didn't get to. Uh, certainly BBC Two wouldn't have really got to. And that was kind of exciting. Yeah. And you started Newtopia 2008? I think so. I can't quite remember. Yeah. Well, my research tells me that. So. <laughs> um, and uh, you really have been credited with creating a new type of show, the Megadoc. Um, and uh, what does the word Megadoc or the term Megadoc mean to you? And, and you know, what was the thinking initially behind creating that as a as There a was a piece of, of research that I saw at the BBC, which has influenced my whole career, which was it compared the numbers of commissionable programs for particular slots. And for single documentaries, there was like 60, 70 great films for every, every slot. Like we would commission three or four of them a year, uh, our part of Storyville. And Quite honestly, they were all, once they got to me, they were all great films by great people who really cared about them. And you could have like thrown darts at post-it notes and they all would have been great. And then when you, at that point in time, the BBC had billboards and posters and huge marketing campaigns. And I realized it was my job every year to kind of have three press conferences with three really big deal things in, in them. And 
you hardly ever got offered any of them. Like network defining, we called them. And they just weren't there. They were, you know, you, you, we'd made them up ourselves. A lot of the big things we did at BBC Two. But you were looking for them as a, as a, as a commissioner and as a channel yeah, controller. Yeah, you wanted people to come in and go, I want to do this thing the whole country is going to be talking about. But very rarely did that happen. People were focused on the one-off or the six-part or the small thing. So it's a lower ambition, really, you were and, finding from indies, I suppose, yeah, at that and, point. And in-house. and every, you, you wanted things that were going to be huge. And I, rem- I remember one instance of that where... Keith Scully, who was running the NHU at that point, he came in and said he wanted to do, I think, a day devoted to spring. And we said, we won't do a day, but we'll do a month. And it became Spring Watch. But we were like, how do we do something that everyone's going to talk about? And really that Newtopia was based on that idea that doing the hardest things and the biggest things is that you're in you're on your, often on your own. You're only competing against yourself or one or two others. There's very few people out there. And that was really, that was the basis of it. We, we, we did Planet Earth at Discovery when I was there. And it was just, it made Discovery so much money, so much money. Uh, and I was like, and I, but then I had to go and see all of the sponsors like Ford. I went to Detroit to try and explain to them why they couldn't have another one the next year. And they were really upset with me and disappointed. It takes a bit longer and than that I, I to said, actually I said, it's make taken stuff. seven years. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but you can do another one quickly. And I was like, ah. and We're Ford. We're Ford. But he's like, we have cars to launch. <laughs> we have trucks to sell. Come and see the assembly line. And if you can't give us a show, then somebody else will. That was like, yeah, looking at these ring of Ford executives. I think I was the only woman in the room kind of trying to say it takes quite a long time to make these natural history things. And you think this is, a, you know, doing really big things. And I suppose I've always been like that. I mean, it's like, look at, look at movies at the moment, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, you know, you do really big things and people respond to that. Yeah. And and I suppose when it comes to factual and setting up a independent production company focused on those big ideas, that must have been difficult in the early days because, as you say, big bigger ideas take longer, take longer to produce and take longer to um, to get commissioned. Presumably, was it was it instant success at Newtopia? The first show we made was a thirteen-hour history of America called America: The Story of Us. It was the very first show that we made. And I knew people at History Channel, quite a lot of people who'd been at Discovery had gone to history. And we just had this idea that I was on a plane and I was looking out the window and I thought maybe you could just see the cities rise up from the plains. And that kind of became the beginning idea that could you show the invention, use CGI to show the invention of America and also use the kind of, deadliest catch kind of sense of heroism and all of those things. And it coincided with Obama on his, on his run for the presidency and, and getting elected. And so there was a very hopeful moment in American life and people felt that they, they wanted to see that aspiration in American life. And 
presumably US networks and streamers now are your main clients. Would you, is, is that true? We've always focused because there's just more opportunity. I mean, we, I, I love, I love the BBC and Channel 4 and ITV. I really do. And I think they're incredible organizations, but you know, at BBC too, anytime you wanted to do anything new, you had to kill somebody's baby. A discovery, like, I, I mean, there was a moment when I said to people, kind of show me the five year rollout of things. And they looked at me as though I was insane. And they said, we could show you the next year, but it's got a lot of gaps. And if you did well at discovery, you could just, you'd get more money and you could make more shows. That was how it worked. But, um, so th- there's just, there's more. More opportunity. And we'll come and talk about the change in the landscape of, uh, of TV and, uh, and digital video in a second. But just going back to what you were saying about Obama and, uh, you know, how Utopia coincided with, with, uh, that new way of thinking. On the flip side of that, um, when Trump got in, how did the Trump presidency affect the type of shows that the networks in the States and, and the streams in the States were commissioning? I don't know that Trump's, the Trump presidency really did that much. I think, I think it's, I think it's now really where you're seeing the level of antagonism that there is between people that it's really hard. I mean, America's story of us, there was like broad agreement about this is our history and it has great bits and it has difficult bits and we survived and made it through. And I'm, I'm an American now, so I say we, uh, and we, you know, we're proud of our history. And at a time now where you have presidential candidates who can't quite bring themselves to say the word slavery about the civil war, uh, it's so divided. So I think that, that series was introduced by Obama and interview Donald Trump as an interviewee. You wouldn't get to do that now in the same show. So And and so you're seeing a change in 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 that sort of commissioning and possibly there might be a, a an acceleration of that if uh, if Trump gets in again, uh which looks fairly likely actually at the moment. I don't think so. I don't think he I think Really? I I, I have to believe. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't think it's likely. Uh, I th- well, I think it's possible, but I he hasn't won an election since 2016. Every election he's been in, he hasn't won. But I'm probably jinxing it by even saying that. <laughs> but I I think it's more it's more that it's harder to do things that bring America together, and that was a lot of the things at both Discovery and at Newtopia that we did. We, we that that sense of community and and shared experience, I think, is hard in a divided times. I mean, it's the same in Britain. It's a, it's a more divided times, which makes those moments like the Strictly finale or something like that even more joyous for people, a sense that we can all get in there and share that. So coming back to the megadocs and you know, how do you find a, define a megadoc? Um, Certainly, a lot of the big factual projects that you've worked on have got a lot of A-list Hollywood talent attached. Um, Will Smith, for example, and Jeff Goldblum, um, Chris Hemsworth as well. Um, 
within the more purist documentary um, sector, if you like, there's a, a little bit of criticism around Megadocs and 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 vehicles for Hollywood stars when it comes to factual. How do you see that? Because obviously it has a place and um, obviously the shows that you produce really rate. Um, but I suppose the more purist documentary makers are worried about the number of hours that are that are going to what many people might see as vanity projects for, for major stars. Well... I think I probably, I, I don't know that I would have commissioned those shows with those stars at BBC Two. We always, when we did Who Do You Think You Are, we always found that TV stars were more successful BBC Two than movie stars. But the thing about movie stars is that they're global. And if you want to do something as big as the shows that we make and it work throughout the world, you need somebody who is recognizable throughout the world. And that's what's driving a lot of that, that these are everywhere across the world. But I I don't know that it's a sort of zero-sum game that, you know, I think the feature doc has kind of come into its own in the last 10 years in a way that it it was at the margins before and underfunded and under, you know, underloved. Um, and now you see feature docs doing amazingly well and becoming really, really big things and being an industry in their own right. So I'm kind of I think there's lots of different things can coexist alongside each other. Um, so tell us about your latest project, which um, is it's like a true crime project, essentially, isn't it? Posh true crime. Posh true crime. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay. So that's Bad Surgeon Love Under the Knife, yep. which many people who are Netflix subscribers may have seen that coming up on my carousel fairly recently. Tell us about that project and and how that's gone. I mean, you're obviously going to tell me how which, what a success well, it's, it was. It's but top top ten in eighty eight countries uh, and number one in I can't remember how many. Uh, number one in quite a few. Number one in Britain and America. And so that was a project. It's about a a doctor who set himself up as one of the most extraordinary figures of our time. The Christian, like Christian Barnard, who invented the heart transplant, he was going to be like that. And he was renowned uh, throughout the medical world. And it was all fake. He hadn't done the experiments that he said he'd done. He'd faked lots of his history. He was also had a complicated personal life with various women that he persuaded uh, of his wonderfulness which didn't exist at all. And so this is telling the story of his relationships with his patients, many of whom died, and also the woman who became his fiance, who was a journalist, who at the very point when they were about to get married realized this was not what it seemed. And it's the intertwined story of the medical, a very serious medical malpractice story but also a man who was a fantasist, who was pretending to be things that he clearly wasn't, like single. <laughs> so true crime, Jane, is that a f- sector that you've worked in a lot before? Is that, your, is that Newtopia's first true crime we, project? We did a series called Vendetta uh, about an Italian anti-mafia uh, campaigner and his who was accused of being a mafia, mafia uh, member. 
and which took us a long time to make in the same way that this one did. That they, We don't do a huge number of these shows, but I think when you get them right, they can be revealing and gripping and they're stories of our times. I mean, crime goes right back to the beginning of literature and takes place in, I mean, Shakespeare writes them, you know, they are, they're a certain pure form of storytelling, which is very hard to do and, and very kind of twisty, turny, enjoyable to make. And extremely popular as a, as a, uh, a genre right now, but particularly we've seen a lot of fast channels and a lot of the digital players really leaning into true crime and, uh, also a lot of the, um, a lot of the networks as well, not only launching their own channels, but, you know, uh, really focusing and doubling down on this. It seems to be very, uh, a very safe bet for a lot of networks, actually, when it comes to true crime. Is that is that how you see it? It's a safe, well, I think audiences really like it. I don't know that it's a safe bet. I mean, they're very hard to tell these stories. You often get halfway through and people, you know, there's legal restrictions or people don't want to tell the story or you feel uncomfortable about telling the story and it's a minefield of legalities and moralities morality I suppose, as well, yeah. and complexity they're not easy stories to tell nicola moody and her team who did an incredible job on the show they spent so much time and looking at the minutiae of the story they're very very hard to tell so i don't think they're they're not like a kind of telling them at this level that it's not like making a a podcast where you just tell the things everybody knows. It's not an easy win, right? Yeah. Okay. So coming back to the landscape of the content industry right now, and we're seeing the most unbelievable amount of turbulence happening. I mean, only today we've seen um, rumors of uh, Paramount shedding up to 800 roles. We saw 20% uh, announcement of 20% of Channel 4 staff a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Amazon also looking to shed numbers. So, you know, there's a huge amount of consolidation and cost cutting going on in the industry. And that global age, I think, of of TV, if you like, peak TV seems to be very much behind us. Or certainly, you know, current news might suggest that. How do you see it? Because having been on both sides of the fence and seeing the post-COVID reaction industry-wise to, you know, a huge amount of commissioning and then really the brakes being put on and and, uh, all the other wider economic circumstances that are driving things. Well, I think if you take a big historical view of it, that television has always gone through these kind of enormous changes. I mean, like dealing with the coming of uh, digital networks was a huge deal in Britain when I was at BBC and but we were beginning BBC Four and BBC Three, and it felt like, wow, this is going to change everything and the shift away from just all powerful terrestrial channels. And then in America, where you had the, the the cable networks coming in and decimating the big networks, and then the cable networks in turn facing the streamers. So I think it is cyclical in that way. I don't think it's like I don't think what's happening now is has never been seen before. 
it's the thing about being my age that you kind of you, you've been there and you've seen it and if, and things change and it feels shocking at the time but people do survive and people watch more content than ever ever before they watch things on their phones they watch things you know like you stand at a bus stop for 5 minutes and you see people with their airpods watching something for the 2 minutes before that bus comes and so we're all consuming stories in all different kind of ways. And so the desire from audiences hasn't gone away, but the ways of delivering has. And there's, yeah, turbulence is definitely the sense. I get the feeling it's starting to calm down a bit. I mean, I f- you feel that, you know, you see Netflix share price back up to what it was. You see Netflix having had what they call the big, rec- the big recalibration and Clearly, Netflix was not going to carry on adding subscribers at a crazy rate throughout the world forever because there'd be no one left. I mean, Facebook went through the same thing. You kind of top out uh, and then you have to change. But so I think it's turbulent and, and really difficult for people in it right now. And I have enormous sympathy for the level of fear particularly for people at the beginning of their careers mm. or at the end of their careers, quite honestly, either either place. It's hard. It's really hard. Well, I would imagine. Uh, well, actually, let, let me ask you that question. So having been a channel, channel controller and a president from a, for major uh, broadcast networks, what are people in those roles going through right now? I think they're very scared. You know, they... I think the hardest thing in those jobs is to try and hold on to creative ambition. And that's what audiences reward you for, right? I mean, and you look at, you know, traitors or Mr. Bates versus the post office or feature films or there's, there's people reward innovation. And I, that's my kind of has been my mantra from the very beginning, and I still believe it. And I think now audiences are smarter and cleverer than they ever have been. I mean, and I think it's harder to make the big bets than it ever was, but you never really break through by making the small bets. Yeah. And how are you preparing Newtopia then for, for the year ahead? Because, you know, we, we're going to see more turbulence, I think. I mean, you, Maybe you're seeing it, it calming down, which is, you know, which is a, a good bit, news story. A little bit, you know. I yeah. think it's, I think there is a sense that people can see a bit of the future. You know, it's like there's a bit of a, you know, blue sky on the horizon out there. I don't think it's as bad as it has been, and I think it will get better. I think the advertising industry is a cause of a lot of the coming problems because clearly television advertising has been fantastically lucrative. And the disruption to the advertising industry is the one that's really not going to go away. Yeah. And when you, that shift to digital, is that shift to social, to social, all that money. Yeah. And mm-hmm. all that money. And so that's kind of, that's the really big thing. And it's interesting people in TV probably don't look at that as much as they should, because that's, that's the underground tremor. I think that's kind of, we're on the back end of a lot of, a lot of that. But, we're continuing to doing what we're doing. We try and be really innovative still. We try and we still believe in really big things. We really, really do. We're making enormous shows right now and we're also managing to sell some really big shows. So it's not really affecting, you know, I mean, when you're setting out for the, for a new year, you know, many 
production companies would be looking at, okay, let's let's just, you know, maintain the business for the next year and let's try, obviously let's still try and get as many commissions as we can, of course, but the reality might be that there's just not as many projects being commissioned. There's not enough, uh, as much money from uh, from networks and streamers. I mean, you're, you're really approaching things business as usual? Is that, well, is that, well, that would sounds a bit flippant. I don't know that mm. I'd do that. I think we, but I think we're, we're certainly trying to, in some ways, hunker down. We recognize that prices have come down. That's definitely the case. And being more efficient and effective in how you make things, I think, is there's no way around that. Uh, but like I say, trying to hang on to innovation in the middle of the turbulence, because that's the thing that's going to get you through, right? It's like, that's the thing that audiences reward you for. And if you can get to that magic thing of something people want to see, but feels different. And I mean, bad surgeon isn't your classic true crime thing. It's something a bit different. It's tells a criminal story, but it's also about people's lives and about medicine, which it used to be that people thought you could never make shows about medicine that get, would get a lot of viewers. So, you know, you have to just find those find those green shoots and work them. <laughs> and you, you talked about um, downward pressure on, uh, on budgets um, and being able to make things for less. Uh, artificial intelligence has been a huge, you know, news story really over the last year, 18 months. Um, and the TV production industry is really starting to grapple with that and, and implement it across uh, various different types of you know pre- and post-production. How are you using AI at New Time? Well, we're working on a big project that I can't tell you anything about, but which is involving um, visual effects that people always said couldn't be done, a particular story that we've been trying to tell for a long time and people said couldn't be done, and we think AI is going to help us tell that story. So again, I'm I'm being like the stereotypical optimist here, but like I I feel like and that's the main way that we as a company are interacting with that, which is innovation, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's very similar to what Leo from Full Well seventy three was saying last week, is that they're going to be looking towards more immersive experiences and their live experiences. And I I gave the example of the moonwalk exhibition happening in london that tom hanks i'm is going this in. week yeah <laughs> ah, well there we are so um well that was my question really is that the i mean mega doc you have amazing access amazing production quality on many of the shows all the shows that you you create is that an area that you can see yourself exploring going I think forward it's all, i think it's interesting we, we uh before covid we were working with some people who were setting up uh huge project in Las Vegas and kind of COVID sent it on another direction. But yeah, I think all of those things that are kind of factually at some level based, some kind of factual in there, but are also about delight and excitement and innovation. That's yeah, exactly what we do. And finally, and I know you can't tell me what projects you've got in the pipeline. I mean, you just uh, referred to one, but Anything else, any other genres that you're currently working in that uh, we might see new big projects in the next down the line? month? You're going to see at least two new mega docs announced and possibly three. I can't tell you what they are. All right. Well, maybe people <laughs> at Real Screen Summit might find those out. Who knows? <laughs> 
And now it's time for Story of the Week, where my guests get to nominate the top TV industry news story that's caught their eye in the past seven days. Jane, what's your Story of the Week? It's completely predictable, but it has to be uh, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, which I'm now reading about in the New York Times (laughs) in America. So it's captured the world in that way. And I just think hats off to everybody at ITV who put the money and the promotion and gave it that prime January slot and really went for it in a way that it's kind of a classic story of a little hero who takes on the world and just so well done and really astonishing moment when a piece of drama manages to change the world like that. Yeah. Well, I'm excited... I'm excited to have Patrick Spence, the producer, on the show next week, actually. To... Oh, wow. Well, huge congratulations. It's just amazing, amazing thing. Yeah, I'll pass it on. And uh, it's interesting, it's made the New York Times. So has it made any sort of other impact? Has it actually been broadcast over in the States yet? Or No, I don't know. Not yet, but I'm sure it will be. Yeah. And but it's such a British story. I think it's also a sense that so many of the things about it that make it wonderful... You don't know what the post office is in Britain or those little post office places. It's it's a bit hard to communicate in some ways. But lots of people talked about how, why was this getting all the attention when there had been a brilliant panorama and brilliant news stories? For me, it's, it's the finding the hero. And I think that people often neglect to have a really heroic how much it can do for you as a viewer to have a hero. And so I, I think that was a brilliant choice. Yeah. Well, I'd be fascinated to find out, you know, how it's going to travel internationally, because as you say, there are lots of common themes there in terms of the underdog story and, uh, um, and fighting against, um, you know, uh, say evil sounds a little bit uh, over the top, but you know, a, a Writing the wrongs that have been done and people that have been, you know, uh, uh, treated so badly. I read one thing which said it was like an Ealing comedy in a way, which I thought was kind of interesting. That kind of reference to like the small coziness of the world. And they clearly made choices in making it. Like, I don't think Mr. Bates lived in a house anywhere near as beautiful as that. And yet putting that house in that place somehow evokes all of those very clever ideas about countryside and all of that. So it's beautifully, beautiful, beautiful piece of work. All right. And how about Hero of the Week? Who is your Hero of the Week, Jane? I'm going to go for somebody that I don't know everybody here will have heard of, but he's an American director called, called Cord Jefferson, who has made what I think is one of the great films of this year, which is called American Fiction. I don't know if that's come out here yet. Not as far as I'm aware. It's but. talked about Oscars are coming up and it's, it's on lists, people's lists as nominees and all of that. It's a satire about a black professor who writes very academic and boring books and can't sell them and who decides to write a book in the voice of a satirical voice of someone from the ghetto. And he calls his book, uh, calls his book Fuck. And he writes it because he hates all the publishers who are printing all this stuff, but it becomes a huge success. And it's the story of, it's the story of race and movies and publishing. And it's a complete delight. And it has an end that is really surprising and truly wonderful. And so I'm here making an advert for American fiction. 
American fiction. Is it? Is that on theatrical release? In America, it's on theatrical release. I saw it as part of the BAFTA Awards here, but um, it's a great film. All right. Well, that's a good tip. We'll all look out for that. And who or what are you telling to get in the bin, Jane? It has to be Lucy Fraser, Culture Secretary. I saw this morning her doing an appallingly inept performance talking about Ofcom and the BBC. And it was so bad, I actually felt sorry for her. I really felt like, oh God, like, and what is it? 12 culture secretaries in 13 years. I think British television is wonderful and amazing. And the foundations of British TV, especially British public service broadcasting is so great as in Mr. Bates and, you know, and traitors and strictly and so many other great things. And yet it feels like the government don't care about it. And it's so striking when you see the amazing work produced and then like 10 culture secretaries in 13 years, give us a break. So in the bin. Yeah. All right. Jane, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been great to have a proper chat with you finally. And and thanks for... uh, uh, for braving the uh, uh, your tiredness after your uh, uh, overnight, night flight. Flight. <laughs> overnight flight. Overnight flight, <laughs> exactly. Um, best of luck with your uh, visit to London and uh, at Real Screen Summit. Uh, I'm assuming you're going to be uh, shooting yep. back for that as well. So, uh, And the best of luck in 2024 for Newtopia. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's show. As always, thanks a lot for listening. You can check out edited video versions of our shows on YouTube. Just go to Telecast TV on YouTube, hit subscribe to get all of our forthcoming free video content straight to your feet. Telecast was produced and edited by Spirit Studios and recorded in London. My guest next week is Mr. Bates and the post office producer, Patrick Spence. Until then, stay safe.